0: Good morning again. Reading to you from the book of Philippians, chapter 3. We're over halfway through now. Chapter 3, verse 1, and I'll read all the way to verse 14. So Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In Christ Jesus. Father God, teach us from your word, I pray. Amen. Have you ever been at that point in a discussion or pray tell an argument when you stop debating and just say, enough, enough? I have to admit, I reached that point fairly often in my parenting journey. Right, Joel? He hates it when I do that. I think we all reach that point in certain areas. It's just part of being human. Well, this portion of the letter we're reading together is much like one of those enough moments. Throughout his ministry, the Apostle Paul has been hounded by a group of people who are set on making people work for Christ's free gift of grace. These people cannot accept that that God would freely give salvation to those who simply believe and place their trust in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they try to add their own ideas and requirements to the gospel. Almost every letter Paul writes, confronts this issue, and now he's taking the time to address it here in hope that the Philippians will be ready to defend themselves against this attack on their faith. The first word further is understood to mean there's one more thing I want to talk about, and it's quickly followed by his declaration, rejoice in the Lord. Now that seems pretty tame when we read it on the page, but when you look deeper into how he wrote this phrase, it's a command bellowed to someone when they're in mortal danger. Anyone who's cared for children will be familiar with hollering, No! Just as the child's about to stick their finger in that socket, or or slide down a flight of stairs in a cardboard box, or, or eat something... That'll hurt them. You don't go, oh dear, maybe you shouldn't place that in your mouth. It's no! And then you sort it out later. The caregiver is not trying to hurt or boss the child. He's trying to save her from danger. Likewise, Paul is calling the Philippians to take joy in the Lord. Whatever may be ahead. Because what better preparation to face false teaching than to rejoice in what God has already done and what he's doing. Those who focus on the greatness of God are less likely to be pulled away from him than those who are preoccupied with other things. You know how they train tellers to recognize real money from fake money. They don't bring in all the fake money and and play with that. They just handle the real stuff again and again and again and again until they just know when they touch it, if it's real or not. I'm not sure if that same thing works for our new plastic bills now, but those things definitely feel different. You'd recognize if they weren't made Right. right. Well, that's how we focus on what God is doing. We focus on what he's done. We focus on who he is, and we rejoice in that. Instead of worrying so much about, oh, is that right? Is that wrong? You know, just focus on what he's done already. It's evident that Paul has shared the following thoughts before. He says he's writing to them about these things again, but he considers them important enough to repeat. And then he spares nothing in the next few lines. He begins with a three-pronged insult that, if directly translated, really shouldn't be repeated in church. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. To fully appreciate the severity of what he's saying, you have to know the problem he's confronting. He's attacking with vigor those who insisted that any new Christian also had to comply with the old Jewish laws and customs, such as circumcision. They called this Judaizing the gospel. It's not a type of problem that attracts a lot of attention today. But to Paul, it was the one issue that really set him off. And it boils down to this, and this does happen today. These folks were adding to the gospel things that took away from the power of the pure message and perverting it into another system of rules and regulations. They were saying, in essence, that what Christ did wasn't enough and that Paul couldn't stand for an instant. Remember back in chapter 1 when he's he's upset a bit that people are preaching the gospel to his detriment. They're putting him down while they're preaching the gospel. He he doesn't like that, but he says The message is still good, so he really doesn't go after them. He says, as long as Christ is preached, I rejoice. What does he say here when people are messing up the gospel, when they're perverting it? Well, he just lets loose at them. To understand how vile the insult he delivers is, let's take a look at what these words meant back then dogs were not considered pets in that day and age you know we post pictures on the internet of our dogs and we love our dogs and that's us that that's fine but in that place at that time they were about the lowest form of animal life imaginable for for both the jews and gentiles alike it's likely that he chose this animal to generate disgust in the Philippians' minds and those who sought to Judaize them. Evil doers was in direct contrast with what these people thought they were accomplishing. They saw themselves as improving the faith that Paul had started in the believers, but Paul regarded them as the antithesis to the gospel he was trying to preach. And mutilators of the flesh was a direct reference to the act of circumcision, which the Judaizers insisted upon for each new male convert, regardless of age. Paul saw this as nothing more than useless mutilation, and let them know in no uncertain terms. He then says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. By contrast, the Philippians, along with Paul, were the true circumcision. Now, that's not a model we would use for our church today. I doubt many Christian t-shirts are going to come out saying, I am the true circumcision, across the front. But it was, in the time, the physical sign that every Jewish male had to show he was a true follower of God. And since circumcision was the physical mark of being God's chosen people, what Paul is saying is that it is those who believe by faith who are truly God's children, as opposed to those who say you have to work for your salvation. Remember, we've talked about the difference between working for and working out our salvation. Working for it is thinking we have to earn it, and that's wrong. Working out our salvation is knowing we're saved and letting the work we give to God come out of that as thanks, as a response to what he's done. He then affirms that we worship through God's Spirit and not just our own. Another example of us not working for God's love but worshiping because of it. We honor God because he's enabled us to do so. We're so thoroughly dependent on him that we need to lean on him to worship him. This is the exact opposite of what the Judaizers were saying. A salvation which is worked for and earned on our own merits. And finally, Paul explains that we glory not in the flesh, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. Another word picture, in the flesh, is a phrase used to indicate works or deeds. As Christians, our actions are products of our faith. They don't earn our salvation from God. The Judaizers, by insisting on observing Jewish law and custom as part of their faith, were saying that we have to earn our standing with God. So after this proclamation, Paul then delivers a three-point testimony from his own life that backs up the importance of what he's saying here. It's a bit of a blast from the past. The first part is a challenge to these Judaizers that comes out of Paul's past as a natural-born Jew. Verses 4-6, to Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Before God, oh, before Paul became a Christian, he was on the fast track to becoming a prominent Jewish religious leader. If anyone, if anyone could claim that they were closer to God through his own deeds, it was Paul. In his time, there were two important parts of the Jewish faith. Your birth line, where you came from, and your deeds, what you did. Paul makes points for both of these to show how much he achieved under the Jewish faith. His reference to circumcision shows that he was born a Jew and circumcised on the eighth day of life, just like all Jewish males. He mentions this to show that he was not merely a convert to Judaism, but born into it. I remember when Chris was born and I was holding him, and they were gonna give him that vitamin K shot right away. They they poked that vitamin K needle into his heel right 20, 30 minutes after he's born. And I said, why do, you, why do you do that? Why do you gotta poke a little baby with a needle 30 minutes in, like, hasn't he been through enough? I didn't say that, but. And, and she explained that the vitamin K helps his, his, his coagulates, his blood to coagulate better, should he get some kind of scratch or something. And I said, well, when does vitamin K normally kick in? if you just leave them alone. And she said, oh, about seven or eight days. And I went, ah, that's why the Jewish people circumcise on the eighth day, they're giving the body a week to get kicking in so that when they do that operation, the blood will clot after. And God told them to do that, they didn't know why, but now we do, and I'll like, cool, cool. Anyway, moving on. Uh, of the people of Israel, Uh, of the tribe of Benjamin are references to his birth line. If he'd been a racehorse, that'd be like Seabiscuit and Secretariat being your parents. Um, His ancestry commanded respect from any Jew. Of all the original tribes of Israel, only Benjamin and Judah stayed true to the covenant God made with David for his people. So his lineage was first-rate. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In every way, Paul sought to live out the Jewish faith. This term also bridges the bragging points. He was talking about birth lines, and now he's going to start talking about deeds. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee made his mark by showing a complete adherence to the law of God. Both the Old Testament and the Torah, which is the commentary they built around the Old Testament. Paul was an up-and-comer amongst the Pharisees of his day. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As a Jew, he was so opposed to the growing church that he sought to destroy it. The early church knew this, and Paul's reference to it here shows that he realizes where misguided devotion can take you. Those who sought to add Jewish rules and regulations to the Christian faith were acting just as badly as he had before he became a Christian. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He's not saying he was perfect. He is saying you couldn't pin him down. You couldn't pin him down. He lived that outward righteousness so well, you couldn't pin him down. So that was Super Paul at his best before his salvation. He was a driven, highly successful religious leader. If he'd been applying for a job, his name would have been at the top of the list. But what all this bragging amounts to is a big setup. He's not bragging to bolster himself. He's setting them up to bolster the incredible work of Christ that has taken over his life. He's taken everything the Judaizers hold dear, birthline, deeds, following to the law, and everything else. He's proven that he achieved way more than they could ever hope to. And then he brings it down with one fell swoop. This is what really matters. But whatever were gains to me I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, rubbish, trash, that I may gain Christ From the dead, he reviewed his former life to show how steeped he was in what these Judaizers stood for. As a Jew, he had a beat on every front: his birthline was the best, his actions faultless, his reputation superb. In this paragraph, he looks at what his current life is now, and completely rejects the emptiness of what he once was. He takes all he ever accomplished on his own and compares it to an empty hole. Nothing, absolutely nothing compares to the change in his life since he met Christ. He's so adamant on the point that he repeats it three times. This was a very Jewish way of expression, repeating it with just a little change every time. Look at how his distaste intensifies every time he repeats this thought. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Everything I consider loss. I consider them rubbish. Now, that last term, rubbish, literally street talk. It's a vulgarity that refers to excrement. In Greek, it's the word skubala. On the street, it's a four-letter word that rhymes with hit. Now, I lost a bet over this word. I couldn't bring myself to believe that Paul would trash talk in the New Testament. My Bible school cohort bet against me and together we went to the books and we explored every nuance of the word. Imagine my jargon when I realized I was losing the bet. And then my worst fears were confirmed years later when my Regent College New Testament prof, who has written several respected commentaries, served as the editor for an complete New Testament commentary series, and was one of the translators of the NIV and the TNIV, the versions I love to use the most, unleashed his literal interpretation of the term on his class of unsuspecting students. The translators in this case have opted for decorum over a literal translation. My point in all this Look at how far Paul is willing to toss aside his former way of life that he may know Christ more and more. And then look at how he draws closer to Christ with each phrase. He first says, for the sake of Christ. He then says, knowing Christ, my Lord. And then he says, gaining Christ. As he tosses the old ways farther and farther away, he's drawing closer and closer to his new found faith, the source of his new found faith. Why is that? Because of the profound sense of freedom he has through what Christ has done for him. He's considered righteous. We're considered righteous, clean and pure, without sin before God, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what Jesus has done for him. Look at what it says. He didn't make his way to Christ by righteousness. He's found in Christ to be without sin through faith. We're found in Christ to be without sin. Through our work? No. Through faith through believing and trusting we're in that same place as well there's nothing he could possibly do to match what's already been done it's left for him to simply believe it's left for us to believe and place our trust and that's why he loads it onto those false teachers his attempts to add, their attempts, pardon me, to add anything to that simple message of faith corrupt the core of the gospel. That in Christ, God's love and forgiveness is free and ready. He then goes on in verses 10 and 11 to share some very personal thoughts about his Savior. He wants to know Christ more and more, through and through. Nothing could be more important and nothing better stand in his way. There's a very ancient hymn that St. Patrick himself is credited with writing, and the chorus communicates what Paul is trying to say. Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me and before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. He wants to associate so thoroughly that it seems he's going to lose himself in Christ. Almost, but not quite. Paul remains quite aware of himself and looks to his future with Christ in the next three verses. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He shared about how his life with Christ was full of achievement, greater in fact than those who opposed him. He then shares how all of what he did was comparable to filthy street trash compared to knowing Christ. And that he desires to know Christ more and more. He's now completing his testimony. It started in the past, led into the present, and is now moving into the future. And listen to his first words in this last paragraph Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on. I'm just so glad for those words. Paul's telling us he's not there yet. The super-apostle Paul, who wrote a good chunk of the Bible we read today, he's still growing. The one who has enjoyed such newfound freedom gives us the freedom to not have to be perfect. Sometimes people turn away from the faith because it makes them feel unworthy. It makes us feel insufficient or immature or inadequate for such a lifestyle. And we quit before we even try Paul's saying he's still trying. He's still growing. He doesn't have it all yet. There's more for him to get. There's more to come. And we can say that too. His goals are lofty. They're intimidating, but he's willing to concede he hasn't arrived. His ultimate goal is to enjoy everything that Jesus has prepared for him in heaven. He pictures it as a prize, and his life is a path to that prize. He doesn't talk about his pace, only his desire, his focus. Growing as a Christian is never a race. We're competing with no one. It's a journey. It's one that's fraught with danger. It's prone to setbacks and sometimes agonizing in progress. But it's his life pursuit. And he'll pursue it with a passion that flings the impediments of the past away for the freedom of the future. So, in our 21st century world, how does all this play out? Well, I think the starting point is our priorities. Is it possible that we, for all of our love of Christ and knowledge of the gospel, may be seeing or even living our faith? through something else, be it culture or family, career, race. The gospel must be our center point. Everything else gets interpreted by it. Paul warns us with shockingly graphic terms not to contaminate that gospel. A Christian lives for it and by it. We don't change it. It doesn't need improving. God did it right. The first time. Another thing that stands out for me is the closeness that Paul desired between his Lord and himself. I recoil from closeness at times. Because I know that as I take Jesus more seriously, I'm going to be confronted with some painful things to deal with. I have to admit that sometimes I like Jesus, but I like him over there or over there. That's the exact opposite of Paul. And the exact opposite of what he's teaching us. As he draws closer to Christ, he draws closer to the glory of the life Christ has ready for him. It must hurt because growth and conflict and battling with the past always do. But past the hurt, there's the beauty and freedom of life. And that's what he presses on for. And that's what he's calling us to do as well. He calls us to press forward toward our complete salvation, knowing it's not done yet, and to know God better and better on the journey. To do that, we have to put aside what hinders and open our lives up more and more to Him. Are you ready to do that today? Forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen.